Hello, welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from around the country and around the world. I'm your host, Jill Anderson. Today, we are talking to Jeff Parati, founding and current director of the Massachusetts Safe Schools Program for LGBTQ students. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you here. So tell us a little bit about how and why you founded the Safe Schools Program. Well, this is a program that began at the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education in 1993, and it was from the very beginning a violence and suicide prevention initiative, uh, an anti-bullying initiative that uh, recognized that there were a certain group of students that um, needed some additional attention and support in schools. So we were very fortunate in Massachusetts to have the resources dedicated to this program and to support the students, their families, and school personnel around this topic. 1993, that was a, a long time ago. I'm curious, how have things changed over the past 20 years, specifically with LGBTQ students? That's a wonderful question, and part of it is uh, in the name of the program. From the beginning of the program, uh, we recognized that there was a need for visibility. In fact, whenever we talk about any discrimination or marginalization that's steeped in secrecy, silence, or invisibility, anything that creates visibility matters. So it was very important from the beginning that we had gay and lesbian in the name of the program. In fact, some people said, can't you just call it the Safe Schools Program? It rolls off your lips so much more easily. Well we recognize the need that, uh, we use the phrase scanning for safety, that students are looking for any clue that someone is a safe, supportive, askable person, and often that's just in the language that's used, in the environment, safe zone stickers, rainbow flags, uh, responding to anti-LGBTQ language, but in the name of the program, it was important that students felt seen and reflected. So at that point, we called it the Safe Schools Program for Gay and Lesbian Students. So you ask how have things changed, over the years, we've uh, gradually added more letters. So right now, it's the Safe Schools Program for LGBTQ students, which is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning students. So a lot of people, especially people, older people, will say, queer, that was a derogatory term when I was growing up. And here you have it in the name of a program at the Department of Elementary and Secondary Ed. Well, because it is a term that especially many young people have reclaimed as a positive term and a term of empowerment, and it's how several students identify themselves. We wanted to make sure that was in the name. So where we were with sexual orientation back in 1993 is sort of where we are with gender identity right now. And in fact, the legislation has reflected that, and uh, the visibility in the media and in the conversations um, have also. So that's one thing that has changed. Uh, I know that we will one of the things around data are 90% uh, of people now say they have somebody close in their lives who's lesbian, gay, or bisexual. That wasn't the case back in 1993. And um, the numbers have doubled in the last five years from 8% to 16% will say they know somebody close who is transgender. So that's one of the things that has changed. I know when I came out to my mother decades ago, <clears throat> excuse me, one of her uh, statements was, Jeff, you don't understand, <clears throat> excuse me. She said, there aren't any gay people in Cleveland. And uh, now my 93-year-old Italian Catholic mom thinks everyone's gay. So uh, that's how things have changed actually over the years around visibility. But where we are with gender identity and supporting transgender people and students 
is similar to where we were uh, when this program began in 1993 around supporting gay and lesbian students. Really? So you're saying it's similar to what it was in terms of supports and things? or I think it's similar to the challenges and to the need for education and visibility and conversations regarding this topic. Amazing. Were there many openly transgendered students in the 1990s? No. I mean, there were some, and it certainly has been uh, gender-conforming and transgender students uh, certainly have always been part of our population and part of the radar screen, but uh, certainly it, there has been a tremendous increase in visibility and students coming out and even being aware that that is an identity that can be claimed. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the, the issues that arise for schools? Well, one of the things is that there's a tremendous need for education, especially regarding terminology. So many of these things are, are new, so when we go into schools and work with faculty, and um, I come from a positive psychology perspective. In fact, I was involved in a popular course here at Harvard in positive psychology, which is all about focusing on the bright spots and best practices. What does it look like when it goes well? And so I think about where are the schools and what are the schools doing that are really supporting their transgender students and uh, what are leadership doing and one of the main things is that they're making space for the conversations in the schools with their faculty. They're recognizing that this is new for many people and that uh, we come from a growth mindset that it's all about learning and improving and growing and making mistakes. We use Carol Dweck's work a lot around mindset that it's about uh, practice and providing opportunities for those conversations. So a lot of what uh, the beginning steps in schools are having professional development or staff training time dedicated for people to learn. And one of the first things we address is terminology, distinguishing sex from gender, talking about gender identity, gender expression, distinguishing that from sexual orientation, that uh, explaining what those terms mean. There's so many terms now, gender queer, gender fluid, pansexual, and uh, so we spend some time defining that. So one of the issues is just that this is new and that there, that especially around gender identity and transgender students, young people are leading the way and uh, school personnel are often uh, struggling to keep up. So one of the things is uh, terminology. And then it's that broader issue around um, messages people get around gender. And this is a real opportunity to talk about who's valued and respected in schools and how is that shown and how the people who aren't conforming to traditional ideas about what it means to be a boy or girl or man or woman often are mistreated and uh, need additional support. So I feel like this is a school climate issue. It's often a mental health issue. These students are at risk for a number of different mental health outcomes. And it's also a social justice meeting, uh, social justice issue that we talk about that the reason why gender identity was added to the student anti-discrimination law was because there was a compelling case made that this was a group of students who had been mistreated, some cases maltreated, misunderstood, and that there needed to be um, additional supports for their needs to be met. What do you find yourself hearing most often from transgendered students about what they want in their school or need it's a wonderful question. We talk about um, 
microaggressions might be a term that uh, is familiar to people from the social inequity and social justice literature. Microaggressions are those sometimes small, sometimes large, uh, racist, anti-Semitic, sexist, homophobic, transphobic things that cumulatively create harm at the end of the day. Well, the positive psychology antidote to that are microaffirmations, the little things that make a positive difference. And for transgender young people, that often is being called by the name and the pronouns that they use. That is huge. Um, I had the one student, he's one of our, was one of our student speakers, now he's one of our consultants and trainers. He transitioned in middle school, assigned sex female, transitioned to male. He said that when he went to his homeroom class, when he was going by his new name, he had already decided the first day of school that if he was not called by his name, he was going to turn around and walk the five miles home. And when he got to his homeroom and his teacher said to him, good morning, Zach, he knew that he could stay in that school and it was going to be a good year for him. So just being called by the name and the pronouns. And you know, sometimes people are avoiding pronouns because like, oh, I don't want to make a mistake or I don't know the pronouns. We talk about, again, the growth mindset. Just say, oh, he, she, oh, I'm sorry. Or ask, what pronouns do you use? That that's our right to do. And it really is a microaffirmation to make that effort to use the pronouns that people want to use and to be called by their name. So that's one thing that really makes a difference. Another one is being able to use the bathroom that's consistent with their gender identity, to play on the sports team, to have the option to play on the sports team that's consistent with their gender identity. Those are some of the things, and that's very much in the public eye, in the public conversation right now, many questions about that. Increased visibility, that people are talking and being educated about it. Those are the things that transgender students, even around language, recognizing now that people, that transgender is an adjective, and it's not transgendered, it's not a transgendered person, it's a transgender person, and it's not a noun, it's not a transgender, it's an adjective, and uh, people are transitioning from one gender to another, they're not transgendering. Sometimes it's just like simple language that people appreciate, people getting educated about and, and intentionally using. So you brought up the bathroom issue, mm -hmm. which is most often in the spotlight in terms of news media and uh, there's a lot of information out there and I think it's what seems to get people a rise out of people um, but we had spoken earlier a little bit when we weren't recording and you talked a little bit about the importance of of the bathroom and how that can make such a huge difference in a student can you just expand a little bit more on that? Well, because it is mm -hmm. so such a seems to be such a tough issue for a lot of sure. schools and in a lot of communities. Sure. Uh, first of all, bathrooms are a very important issue, especially for transgender students, for all students. And when you ask, unfortunately, if you ask transgender students where they're going to the bathroom, the majority of them will say, "I'm not going to the bathroom." In fact, several of them stop eating and drinking so that they don't have to go to the bathroom. They're often preoccupied with it, and sometimes they have a higher incidence of eating disorders because of that and a lot of medical issues because it's not a safe place or the, it's such an anxiety-ridden environment. And we're hearing that from parents of very young transgender children. 
that they're avoiding bathrooms. So that's why it's an important issue. And just as a little bit on a side, when I talk about transgender children, we are not talking about performing surgery on kids. That's, that's a misconception, that, that we're talking about social transitioning as opposed to medical transitioning. And there are young people, you know, as early as one or two who are aware of their gender identity and aware that that's different from their assigned sex at birth. And uh, sometimes there's a lot of distress that anxiety, depression, sometimes stuttering, that very young people experience when they feel like there's a mismatch between how they think about themselves and how other people perceive them. And at a very young age, if they're able to socially transition and be called by the name and the gender that they identify with, often a lot of those symptoms disappear. The anxiety and the depression, and they're able to thrive. A child's gender identity, researchers have shown, is often established at age four, the average, and often as early as one or two. So that's as opposed to sexual orientation, which people sort of sometimes confuse, which is not till early adolescence that the average is. So children is very, uh, so children are socially transitioning, younger and younger, and sometimes it's treated as a medical diagnosis where people are only told on a need-to-know basis what the assigned sex of that young person is. All their records have been changed in schools, and sometimes it's only the school principal and the school nurse that know that. So it's relevant to bathrooms because often people will come in high school and say, well, where are we going to put this transgender student as if they know who the transgender students are, and often people don't. It's no one's business what's underneath people's clothes. So as long as people have a process to be determined that this is not going to be done for any improper purpose, that students are able to use the bathroom consistent with their gender identity or an all-gender bathroom, that's the best practice policy. And for students, it's very important that there are several all-gender bathrooms that are available. When we talk about the clues for students that it's a safe and welcoming environment, right up there with safe zone stickers and inclusive curricula is the presence of an all-gender bathroom. That is a clue and a signal to a person that they're welcome and, in and included. It seems like the climate is really changing, though. I mean, you're on the front lines of this, so do you see a lot of changes happening quickly, at least in Massachusetts? It's changing rapidly with the people learning, with the increased uh, visibility in the media, in people's conversations, even with um, people who express differing ideas about the inclusiveness of transgender people. That is helping people to understand transgender people exist and helping to understand that. One of the most important factors that contributes to a young person's well-being is a caring adult, especially parental support. Parental support is the single largest factor that contributes to positive outcomes for a young person. So when we're talking to schools, we talk to teachers and other adults who could make a real difference to help to bring a parent along or help to educate parents. And the vast majority of school personnel that we talk to are also parents, so they're often wearing two hats. How is this affecting my students, and how might it affect my relationships with my children as well? So parental support is huge. And the other important factor from the Family Acceptance Project, Dr. Caitlin Ryan at San Francisco State, it's a wonderful website and project that shows it's very encouraging and hopeful is that just a little parent parental support goes a long way. A parent doesn't have to go from being rejecting to celebratory to make a difference, but just becoming a little less rejecting, a little bit more accepting, has enormous benefits.
What do you most often hear when you get called to a school? What are, what are you hearing from educators? That, you know what, we need to increase our comfort and confidence around this topic. They, they recognize that they have a lot of questions, and I always like to say, we're not going to necessarily answer every question, but we are going to increase your confidence and comfort regarding a topic that might be new. And that's often what they're saying, is that they're saying, we have transgender students, and this is new for us. Could you come in to help us to know how to support these students and their families? Sometimes we're called in about an individual student transitioning to help to develop a plan regarding who needs to know what information, when, and how it's going to be communicated. And sometimes it's about providing the resources for the school to help them to have the conversations, either with the core people who are getting the most questions or with the general faculty regarding how to make sure they're supporting these students and their families. And we're just about to wrap up in a few minutes, but I wanted to bring attention to something that you spoke about, which was the importance of hearing from a transgender student and family in their own words. So maybe you can share a little bit about that. So if I have one bit of advice for people who are beginning conversations about this in schools, it's to make sure that the voices of young people and their family members are represented because there are many of those voices that are available through our videos and, and um, maybe even through your own systems that really make a difference. And to have this theme that's a universal theme and challenge for all of us, which is that fear does not have the last word. And fear does not need to come in the way of being our authentic selves. These students and families are so inspiring around that. And I just did a professional development for a school district, and the superintendent, she was sitting there the whole time and hadn't said a word in two hours. And at the very end of it, she said, I had no idea what she was thinking, but she said, you know, what I'm taking from this right now is that it's all about love. And I thought, that's wonderful. And it's not that we're necessarily talking about love very often in professional development in schools, but for somebody to get that that's what this is about and that, um, that when students have that from families or sometimes instead of their families at school, it makes all the difference in their thriving. So um, thank you very much. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Wow, Jeff, that was um, really powerful and incredibly insightful uh, to hear from you and hear what's going on. Uh, for listeners, they can read more about this topic coming up in the fall issue of Ed Magazine. And you've already mentioned people who want to see videos or hear more, they can check out the commission's website, correct? That's correct. And I just want to give a shout out also that I attended the Ed School here and I had many mentors who were wonderful that really yeah. laid the groundwork for me to be doing this work and to be doing work at the department where we have a role in developing policy as well as in schools. We Student leadership is an incredible component around this that we're able to do. I feel like I got some of my best preparation from my mentors here, whether it was Susan Moore Johnson or Karen Seashore Lewis, Rachel Hermuston, Lee Bowman, um, many, Carol Gilligan, I mean, some people doing wonderful work, and to be able to go back now to do this ed podcast, as well as to be able to speak to the classes where, you know, that people are continuing this conversation to to prepare pre-service teachers like Gretchen Brian Mizells and Susan, um, that Stephanie Jones and Laura Johnson, 
um, Rick Weisbert. I mean, people who are doing great stuff here right now at the Ed School. It's it's wonderful to come back, and I feel very proud to be connected with the Ed School <laughs> and to be continuing to be involved in conversations around this topic. Thanks so much, Jill, for having me. Thanks. The check's in the mail for, for that nice <laughs> job. <laughs> this is the Harvard EdCast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>